I started last week this theology of comfort that was part one and the second and final part this week, seeking to understand God's purposes for us as His people in times of affliction and in times of comfort as we experience both simultaneously through this life. But before we get back into the text, how about I pray one more time? Father, we thank You so much that You are who You are, that You are totally without need. God, that You took on flesh so that You could suffer affliction, and that You suffered affliction on our behalf. Lord, we appeal to You, the God of all comfort, as we go through affliction in this life, that You would comfort us by Your Word, by Your Spirit, because of our salvation, that You would comfort us with Your presence through the body of Christ. And Lord, we ask that today as we examine what it is that You've said, that we would have our, the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we would grow in our understanding, that it would deepen our love and appreciation for You through the gospel. God, thank You so much for all that You do and continue to do. And we ask together that I would not get in the way of your word this morning, but that your word would be clear to your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at 2 Corinthians 1, again, verses 3 to 5. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Well, last week we really focused on that word there in verse 4, affliction focused on the word affliction for most of the sermon last week, considering what are these afflictions that we go through in life? What are the afflictions that we go through and experience God's comfort because of them? And we started talking about comfort, and I gave you a basic definition of comfort. And so just to remind you, uh, this really complicated, deep theological term I gave you for being comforted, it means to receive a spiritual boost. <laughs> what does it mean to be comforted? In this sense, it's to receive a spiritual boost, to use, I don't know, perhaps more flowery language. It is soul consolation, and that's through truth exhortation. It's soul consolation through truth exhortation. It's to be strengthened with godly and biblical encouragement. Not to be strengthened, so you think, by just any encouragement, but it's to be strengthened in spirit through godly and biblical encouragement. And today we're going to talk about the application of this comfort, particularly what we see there in verse 4, that we are to share this comfort with others, that we receive comfort from God, and as we receive that comfort, we are to go on to share it with others. Look at verse 4 again, the second half of verse 4. I want us to see something before we get to that application of sharing it with others, I want you to see this. This comfort that we have, that we share, it is the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so to put it just plainly, as you think about how all this works, A.T. Robertson had just a very succinct, clear quote on this. Personal experience of God's comfort 
is necessary before we can pass it on to others. So I want us to spend the first part of this sermon today to consider how we ourselves are comforted by God. Because the comfort that we take to others, it's the comfort that we've received from God. Well, we have to understand how, in fact, we are comforted by God. And the first place that we see that, if you're following along in your notes, you'll see that the first place where we receive comfort from God is in our salvation. We most prominently experience God's comfort in His saving acts, don't we? As God saves us and we have that assurance, that blessed assurance in our souls, that's the initial comfort that we have with God. It's our first comfort with God is coming to know Him through the gospel. Like the first car you ever had or the the first kiss you ever had, it's unforgettable to know how you've come to know God and His comfort through salvation. Being saved by His grace is unforgettable, and in that we have an amazing soul consolation. And I want us to consider how God described His salvation as a salvation of comfort all the way back in Isaiah. So please turn with me back to Isaiah. There are several passages I want you to see, starting in Isaiah 12, Isaiah chapter 12. Over and over again, He has told Israel throughout this book, through the prophet Isaiah, how he was going to comfort them. Now, to be sure, (laughs) there's plenty of judgment waiting for Israel in this book too. Over and over again, he's telling them how their sins will have to be judged. He's communicating to them that their enemies will be judged for their sins. But he also gives a promise to Israel of a coming salvation in which there will be comfort. Particularly here toward the start of the book, you might see as headings in chapters 11 and 12, that He promises Israel that there will be a righteous branch that will come. A righteous branch, the root of Jesse. He will stand as a signal for the peoples, and His resting place will be glorious. There's coming this, this righteous ruler for Israel. And God tells them that it's through this righteous ruler that they will receive comfort. So let's look at chapter 12, verse 1, where God says to Israel, You will say on that day, when that righteous branch is there, when the righteous one of David is among them, they will say, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Isn't that amazing? And turn forward with me to chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40. There's, it's pretty well known that Like the whole Bible, the book of Isaiah actually breaks down to 39 and 27. The whole of the Bible is 66 books. The whole of Isaiah is 66 chapters. The first 39 books of the Bible comprise what we call the Old Testament, and the other 27 are the New Testament. Well, in the book of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, you get this emphasis on Israel and their enemies and their sin. It kind of sums up what's going on in the Old Testament. But the last 27 chapters of Isaiah really focus on the coming Messiah. You do get it in the first half too, but you get it really explicitly in the second part of Isaiah. So it kind of mirrors the whole Bible in that sense. So chapter 40 is where it starts this emphasis on the coming salvation in the Messiah. And look how it begins. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, comfort. Oh, comfort my people, says your God. As God begins to really explain in detail this coming salvation through Israel's Messiah, the first thing He says is, 
comfort. There will be comfort coming to this people because of that righteous branch, the son of David. And this, of course, this comfort will come to Israel. There's coming a day when Israel will be saved. But it's already begun with us, hasn't it? We've already begun to experience the comfort of God through the Messiah. We've already begun to experience the Savior's comfort because of the gospel. Those of us who have been born again, those of us who have been born from above, we have experienced God's comfort. And make no mistake about it, this comfort is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Turn with me in Isaiah to chapter 61. Isaiah 61, the first two verses of that chapter Listen to what it says about how this comfort is going to get to the people. How is God's comfort going to touch the recipients? It says in Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. If you remember in the New Testament, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus was there and opened up the scroll of Isaiah and read this portion, and He says, today this has been fulfilled in your midst. Jesus says this is about Him. This passage is about the Messiah Himself who's going to come. And out of all these things that are listed here that He's going to do, look again at the end of verse 2. He is going to comfort all who mourn. And of course, He promised that in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 4, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And of course, our comfort comes through Jesus In our passage today, don't turn back there again yet, there's one more passage in Isaiah, but in our passage today in 2 Corinthians 1.5, it says, just as our sufferings are abundant in Christ, so also our comfort abounds. Comfort abounds to us through Christ. So we have this comfort from the Messiah who is coming to comfort all who mourn. And when I say we have this comfort, I'm talking, of course, about Christians, those who have believed in Jesus, those who have believed in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, we are the ones who have received the comfort of God. In Romans chapter 6, it says that we've been baptized into Christ's death through believing. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are identified with Him so intimately that we have shared in His very death. Perhaps After the resurrection, the most famous act of Jesus dying on the cross, we are are with Him in the likeness of His death as believers in Jesus. But it also goes on to say that we are also identified in His newness of life. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead and He walks in newness of life, so too the believer, the one who trusts in Jesus, he now has newness of life. You have a new life. You're a new creation. When we get to this portion in 2 Corinthians, it's chapter 5, verse 17. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature, a new creature. There's been a second work of God, not just to make you, but to make you again. You've been born again. And that's how we experience the comfort of God through Christ, through the gospel in our salvation. And this comfort lasts for all eternity Go to the last chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, and let's look at verses 12 and 13. 
speaking to those who love God's presence, those who, who desire the presence of God, and at this time it will be in Jerusalem, those who long for Jerusalem. Look at what God says, Isaiah 66, verse 12, "'For thus says the Lord, "'Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, "'and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, "'and you will be nursed, "'you will be carried on the hip and fondled on the knees.'" Listen to this, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. You looking forward to that day? What a glorious day that will be when our faith is turned to sight, and there's a direct comforting that we receive from God in person, enjoying God in His comfort for all eternity. That's what we have to look forward to as Christians. Yet we know that we don't have to wait until then to experience that comfort. That's what Paul is saying at the beginning of his letter, the second letter to the Corinthians. He's explaining we have that comfort now. Our eternal life has begun now, hasn't it? We have eternal life today. And so, in the meantime, as we look forward to that future day, we appeal to His Word. Psalm 119, verse 50, talks about this. In Psalm 119, 50, it says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your word has revived me. The same theme that Paul's talking about, comfort in affliction. What is our comfort in affliction? Well, of course, it's our salvation, and it's our salvation that we have communicated to us through the word. We are revived by the word of God. The word of God is how we draw closer to God, particularly in times of affliction. You might remember Jesus' prayer in John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. He prays to the Father and says, Sanctify your people in the truth. Your word is truth. We appeal to the word of God and we draw closer to God and closer to holiness through the word of God. And this salvation that we're focusing on, this salvation of comfort culminates in our resurrection, in our glorification, and in our reigning with Christ. And we'll do that comfortably. We'll have great comfort in our resurrection, in our reigning with Christ, in our eternity spent with God. There will be great comfort in those acts. But first, of course, we must go through many trials here. Before you get to that day where your salvation culminates, and there you are in Jerusalem being comforted by God as a child on a mother's hip, you must go through many afflictions. You must suffer. And Scripture directs our thinking on this in Romans chapter 8, Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And catch this, verse 17. If children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we indeed suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. You see the necessity of suffering, the necessity of passing through this life, the necessity of dealing with affliction. As we suffer and we are afflicted and we share in the sufferings of Christ, there's coming a day when we'll be glorified with Him. You get the same thing in 2 Timothy. This is the last letter that Paul wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 11. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with Him... That's our identification with the death of Christ. We will also live with Him. If we endure, 
we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Aren't we thankful for that? But if we endure the promises, we will also reign with him. So the sufferings of this life that have comfort intermingled, it's necessary. It's a part of how our salvation is playing out. It's a part of how we experience God in this life leading to a day when we reign with Christ and we're glorified with Him. And this is what Paul is seeking to communicate to the Corinthians as we think about the letter that's before us today. The Corinthians didn't appreciate the sufferings of Paul. The Corinthians looked at all of Paul's afflictions and they thought, that's a problem. That shows that he's deficient in some way. Paul's sufferings must reveal that he must not be all that he made himself out to be. An apostle who's homeless at times and shipwrecked and hungry and beaten and persecuted? You're the leader? Well, as Robert Gramacki was noting in his commentary, just as Christ suffered for him, Paul was willing to suffer for Christ. Just as Christ had to suffer to gain glory, so Paul knew that his suffering would gain consolation or comfort. As impossible as it may seem, this soul consolation, the comfort that we have from God, is first experienced now, even amid many trials and many afflictions. Just as Christ's sufferings abound to us now, so does His comfort. Even now, because of your salvation, you can experience the comfort of God in this life. Now, glory and kingdom reign, that's later. That's not now. It's through many afflictions that you must enter the kingdom of God, Acts 14. But even now, though, you can begin to experience that comfort, and that's the big picture of comfort in our salvation. A second way we experience the comfort of God is with God's presence, with the very presence of God. Think about this, if you are here this morning as a believer in Jesus, if you're a child of God, is there anything sweeter to you sweeter to your soul, to comfort your spirit than, than the continued presence of God. Not the theory of God, not doctrines of God written on paper, but what comforts your heart? Isn't it the very presence of God? It should be. One of the most famous psalms, of course, is Psalm 23, 4. This is the funeral psalm, right? Psalm 23. But you remember... Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, it says, you are with me. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's our word. God's very presence comforts us. If you're a sheep, if you're a wolf, he has tools for that. He's got a rod and a staff and he's there to beat off the enemy and to correct his own and to keep his own close by. He comforts us. But He's not only beside us in this comfort, he's, His presence is not only beside us, His presence is actually within us. I think this is one of the most astonishing verses in all of the New Testament. And that's John 14, verse 23. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and here it is, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and make our abode with Him. 
Isn't that amazing? Jesus says elsewhere, you will know in that day that I am in the Father and that you are in me and I in you. Of course, we learn in the New Testament, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. We have the fullness of the presence of God within. This is absolutely amazing. You are experiencing something today, Christian, that no Israelite ever got to experience. The permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming to regenerate, to give a new nature, to bring forth fruit, to seal you until the day of redemption, to inhabit you as His temple, the very presence of God comforting you and bringing forth fruit, intimately dwelling with you, sustaining you, comforting you in every moment of life. We know that the Holy Spirit is the person who applies the presence of God to our lives. And again, we see it in John, John 14, verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper. Yours might say, comforter, that He may be with you forever. Forever. John 16, verse 7. Along the same lines, Jesus says here, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Can you imagine hearing that as one of his disciples? You have the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Man right there in front of you, and he says, you'll be better off if I leave. How so? For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit is rightly called the Comforter. It's that Greek word, Parakletos. It means to come alongside, to exhort, to encourage, to comfort, to help, to advocate. The Holy Spirit, He teaches us, He guides us, He convicts us. And we know, of course, that it's through the Holy Spirit, it's through the Spirit of God that we are comforted as He produces fruit, even in affliction. And don't you think this is Paul's big point that he's communicating to the Corinthians who look down on his sufferings? Paul is saying, yeah, but I have God. And I have God working in me, working through my afflictions to bring about the hope of glory, to bring about fruit, to advance the, the message of the kingdom, to advance the gospel of salvation. John MacArthur, in his commentary, put it this way, comfort based on human wisdom is short-lived. <laughs> and the Corinthians had a big problem with that because it does not address the deep issues of the heart. The only true source of hope and strength is God's supernatural, transcendent comfort that comes by the Spirit and the Scriptures. And so the second way we experience comfort from God is through the eternal Spirit who imparts comfort to our souls. And then thirdly, this is the, the way that we experience comfort that's emphasized in our text today. We experience comfort from God through the body of Christ, through the church. We experience comfort from God. As His family, we attend to one another with the comfort that He gives. When we come together and we seek to bless each other, when we seek to minister to each other, when we seek to build one another up, encourage one another, how do we do it? Well, according to Paul here in 2 Corinthians 1, it's with the very comfort of God. We attend to one another with the comfort that He gives. Look at our text today, again, verse 5. This is really the fulcrum of the passage. Verse 5 saying, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, 
so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. We see here that we have unity with Christ. Why do we share in the sufferings of Christ? Why do we share in the afflictions of Jesus? It's because we are unified to Him. Through faith, we are one with Him. We have this very deep, intimate connection to Jesus, each one of us individually, but also the whole of us collectively as the bride of Christ, as the very temple of God, the gathered assembly. The New Testament doesn't just say that you individually are the temple of God. The New Testament teaches that the church is the temple of God. As we come here together, the Spirit is present. The Spirit is working, imparting truth and encouragement to our hearts. We are bound to Christ, and Christ administers comfort to His body. So just as we have unity with Christ, we have unity with one another. We are bound together, like it or not, and we share in all things. Hopefully you like it. Maybe some days you like it more than others, right? We're bound together in Christ. He's made us one. There's an amazing verse from the New Testament on the one comfort that we share in together as the church. It's Acts 9.31. It says, The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. That's the goal, isn't it? And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it, the church, continued to increase. We share in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We share in that together as the church. Well, it is this last point, the comfort that we have from God through the body, it's that point that I want us to dwell on for the rest of the message as we think not only of comfort from God, but now we have this comfort from God that is for others. We have comfort for others. And let's read in our passage down through verse 7. I want to start again in verse 5 because it's so important. 5 to 7. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Well, Paul's great thesis here in the last part of this passage is that as we experience God's comfort in those ways that I just explained to you, we are to share it with one another. You could say that God's purpose in comforting us is that the comfort would extend to others. Look again at verse 4 with me. There's a very important little two-word phrase that I always like to point out to you. In verse 4 it says, God comforts us in all our affliction, here it is, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in, in any affliction. So that, that little phrase that always shows us purpose. What is God's purpose in comforting us? Well, one of His purposes is that we would be able to comfort other people with that same comfort. We know in Galatians 6.2, it says that we are to bear one another's burdens. And as we bear one another's burdens, what are we fulfilling? The law of Christ. The law of Christ is fulfilled among us when we bear one another's burdens, which is really sharing comfort, isn't it? 
our experiences with affliction actually equip us to comfort others. Have you ever thought of it that way? As you go through a trial in your life, as you suffer in your life, as you're going through something that you would just rather totally avoid, but God is bringing you through that fire, and in so doing, He's imparting comfort to you through reminding you of your salvation by His presence, His bearing fruit in that difficult situation, being ministered to by the body as you're comforted in all that affliction. Have you ever thought of it this way? You're actually being equipped to help someone else. God is actually making you fit. He's making you able. He's giving you an ability through that trial to help someone else, to comfort someone else. Since our affliction leads to comfort, we can actually say that our affliction is for the comfort of someone else. That's what Paul is saying here in verses 6 and 7. His affliction was for their comfort. Now, this is a real mind change for some of us because this is anti-individualism here. This is a very non-individualistic way of looking at life, focusing on others so much that you see their good in your suffering. That's pretty radical, isn't it? To have such a worldview that you see the good of others, the benefit of others, the advantage of other believers in the trial that you're going through. But that's gospel love, isn't it? You think Jesus had us in mind as He suffered on our behalf? You better believe it. That's the love of Christ. And for us to have the love of Christ for one another is we look for the needs of others, for the good of others, even in our own trials. You'll notice that Paul here isn't exalting himself as an apostle. How easy it would have been to write to the Corinthians who looked down on him because of his sufferings, and he could have just pulled rank. He could have just said, hey, I'm, I'm the general here. Shut up. That's what he could have said. But that's not how he viewed himself. He didn't exalt himself. He actually magnified his suffering. He magnified his affliction because in that he saw the good of the Corinthians as God was at work. The apostle simply saw himself as an overflowing vessel. Have you ever seen one of those fountains that has different levels and there's one vessel that fills up another that overflows and fills up another? Well, the comfort of God was so pouring into the vessel of Paul and overflowing, that it extended on to the Corinthians. The comfort of God overflowed to Christ, overflowing to Paul, overflowing to the Corinthians, overflowing to others. And that's what's going on in our lives as we suffer for Christ. We experience this overwhelming, magnificent, beautiful comfort of God that equips us to pour into other people, that actually trains us and enables us to help someone else. And so Paul's conclusion in our passage today is that the world's afflictions actually lead to God-centered comfort for all of us. And there was one commentator I was reading, I don't remember which one, who made a, a very interesting point. The Corinthians may not have even known very much suffering themselves. If you can think back to 1 Corinthians, Paul was talking about some of their specific situations, and they were allowed to go 
dine in idols' temples. They were welcome to go hang out with the pagans. It says that unbelievers were walking into their house church, into their services, and it's like there wasn't even a conflict. They kind of had this relationship with the outside that seemed very easy. It didn't seem like there was much persecution there, as opposed to the Thessalonians who received the word in much affliction, Paul says. And so he's writing to these Corinthians who perhaps were living a pretty squishy life, like maybe we are. They were living a pretty comfortable life by the world standards. And Paul starts off by saying, let me tell you what real comfort is. I'm dealing with all these afflictions, and you're actually sharing in them with me. And in so doing, you're receiving true comfort. As I write this letter to you, as I come visit you, I'm bringing the experience of God, the comfort of God that He's given to me. And notice he uses the language in verse 7 of sharers. He says that these Corinthians truly are sharers of their sufferings, Paul and Timothy and those who were with them. The sufferings, the afflictions they endured, the Corinthians were actually sharers in that suffering, he says. They were fellowshipping in the afflictions with each other, just as we fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. Paul said that was his great desire, right? To know the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Well, you can't time travel and go back and be right there next to Christ and be crucified with Him. You can't literally do that and share in the sufferings in that way. But you can be so identified with Christ that His death is your death. And you can be so identified with other believers that their affliction is your affliction. What, an, what a high view of the church. What a high view of the body of Christ. That we see whatever someone else is going through as what we're going through. It's to our shame. And I can be first in line here. How little we think of our brothers and sisters who are dying today for the name of Christ. The book of martyrs is still being written. If we're thinking of those who are, are truly putting everything on the line for Jesus, are we fellowshipping with their afflictions? Do we sense that we're sharing in those sufferings? We should. That's the biblical way of viewing the family of God. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice because we're one in Jesus. And just as we share in the sufferings, we do get to share in the comfort. The Corinthians themselves could now fellowship in that soul consolation that Paul had received, the spiritual strength from the encouragement that comes from the truth. And this comfort is present even when despairing. Look at verse 6 again with me, where Paul says that this comfort is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Perhaps Paul here was predicting that sufferings were coming for the Corinthians, that persecution was coming, that affliction was coming. And he was prepping their minds here by saying, patiently enduring. And that's the Christian life, isn't it? To patiently endure this fallen world. We're not yet conquering. We're not yet reigning. That's future. We now patiently endure, awaiting the day when we will reign. Four times in this letter, Paul actually connects this enduring of afflictions with death itself. Drop down to verses 9 and 10 with me, same chapter. Chapter 1, verse 9, Indeed, 
We have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and yet he will deliver us. Flip over to chapter 4 with me, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 10 through 12. We looked at this last week too, but I want you to see afresh how desperate this affliction was. Paul says that his group was always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. There was utter desperation in these afflictions, and yet there was still comfort, wasn't there? He still experienced comfort. And this, going through this in this life, is a team effort. We do this as a church. We do this as Christ's body. When we together patiently abide through suffering, there is faith, more faith, there is grace, there is comfort. As we suffer together, looking to Christ, the captain of our salvation, there is favor with God. Now, I mentioned this last week, and I'll mention it again. It does bear repeating. If the suffering, if the affliction that we have is a result of our own sin, of our own folly, it's of our own doing, rebelling against God, well, you can't expect comfort in that affliction. When you repent, you can find the comfort of God, but not in that affliction. And Peter, in 1 Peter 2.20, he spells this out, uh, talking about the trials that we endure. He says, what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. That's the difference. When we do what is right and we suffer for it, when we live for God and we walk by faith and not by sight, when we seek to do His good will and we suffer, there's favor with God as long as we're still pursuing Him in faith. He's working it all together for His glory and our good. And we do this together as the church. Sinful and worldly suffering has no comfort, but there's a comfort in God that we share with one another. So what does this look like? What does this look like? I'm talking over and over again about sharing and comfort and comforting one another. But do you know how to do that? Maybe, maybe not. And in, in one sense, uh, there's really no wrong answer. If you're seeking to bless someone in the truth, if you're seeking to love somebody and you do so in faith, God's going to use that. But I just want to throw a few thoughts out there as to what comforting one another could look like. Because in today's trouble, we're still able to comfort one another, aren't we? Even though the troubles have evolved, the troubles have changed, our troubles aren't the same as Paul's, you're not going to get shipwrecked, probably, okay? Um, yet, you are going to go through afflictions, others will go through afflictions, and we can still comfort one another and transmit that strength that God gives. Well, I'd say, first of all, our example of receiving and living in God's gracious comfort through trial, just that example comforts others. 
I don't know about you, but when I'm witnessing firsthand someone in the body that I know is just going through a really, really difficult time, and yet that person continues to live for God, that person continues to put one foot in front of the other and seek to be with his people and seek to bless others, and and that person is just deepened in his or her faith, that is a blessing to me. And you better believe that Paul had that in mind as he was writing to the Corinthians. As he was saying, you're comforted by the comfort that we've received, he's saying, look at our example. And several times in this letter, he's going to give details of what he's gone through. And he's going to point to the example of his own life and how God has worked in his life. And that comforts other Christians. So just our example of living for God through difficult times is a great comfort to other believers. But additionally, we know that the New Testament calls us over and over again to be focused on one another in our living. We have those one another passages in the New Testament that go beyond just just live and don't say anything to people. We are told to communicate with one another and to encourage one another in that way. And so I'd say another point of application here is that we must seek to make comforting and encouragement an impulse. We must seek to make comforting one another and encouraging one another an impulse in the Christian life, an immediate reaction, something that becomes somewhat of a habit, something that we do basically just naturally. As we see a brother or sister in Christ suffering, it should be our impulse to want to help and to comfort in some way. When I was in college, I worked for a a grocery store. I worked for several grocery stores, but one of them that I worked for was extremely frugal, very, very frugal chain of grocery stores. And during our training, I remember specifically, we were told how to interact with somebody who slips on the floor when the floor had just been mopped or someone who gets cut or something by something in the store. We were trained how to interact with that person because the grocery store was so scared of being sued. So you had to choose your words carefully in that moment. So they would say, you know, someone comes in and swoop, slips on the floor and is just down lying, lying on the floor. You don't go over to that person and admit to any fault. There is nothing you should say that would give that person grounds in court to sue you, to blame you, to say that you confessed, you admitted any sort of guilt. You have to be very careful. I think they even told us, don't say you're sorry even. Just say, may I help you or whatever. You know, treat the person like an, I don't know, an animal or something, not even like a human being, like a, like a plant that fell down. And that's just so backwards. It's so wrong. And I think Joe probably knows that uh, more than any of us. She had her own slip and fall experience. But as Christians especially, when we see another Christian in suffering, in affliction, Our impulse should be to go and to do all that we can by God's grace to help that person. To to not put any kind of stipulations on our love and say, well, I don't want to sign myself up for too much here. Don't hold back. Aren't you thankful God hasn't held back with you? God has poured so much love and comfort and encouragement in your life that you can overflow and be a comfort and encouragement to someone else. I'd say also with this, we need to pursue in-person fellowship as a priority. Here's a, just a reality 
Maybe you want to fight it. I don't know. But this is, to me, a pretty basic reality. True biblical comfort doesn't come from a text message. True biblical comfort isn't found in an email or even a Marco Polo. Now, that's a little bit better. At least you can see the person's face. That's cool, right? But true biblical comfort comes from being with people. God incarnate, He didn't send us a message. Now, He did send us a message. He didn't only send us a message. We have 66 amazing books here. But He also came, didn't He? He dwelt among us. He was found in the likeness of, as a man. And He comforts us continually by His presence, His true presence, His Holy Spirit. And so let's seek, and I'm not talking about just Sunday morning, it begins here, but let's seek to be with each other, to go physically be with another human. Our day and age, that sounds scarier and scarier. We're becoming more and more isolated, the more technologically advanced, the more supposedly intelligent we become. We're living in silos. But don't you know that we need each other, the presence of each other? God gives us His presence, and we need to give one another our presence as we seek to encourage. One more point of application. Let us be very slow to judge others' suffering. Let us be very slow to make judgment calls about the afflictions of others. Again, I mentioned that the Corinthians, they didn't appreciate Paul's sufferings. They used his suffering as a basis for their judgment, to say, there must be something wrong with Paul. He's been struck by lightning 18 times. There must be something wrong with that guy. I just saw a story recently about some guy who was struck by lightning seven times. Isn't that, a, isn't that crazy? And he had the, the proof in his body, let me tell you. <laughs> Let's be very slow to judge the sufferings of another. There is truth, as we saw in 1 Corinthians uh, 10, God does discipline by causing people to suffer. When the Corinthians weren't observing communion correctly, Paul says, that's why some of you are sick and why some of you are dead. God disciplines. He touches the body. He does do that. But you need to be so slow to come to some sort of judgment about someone else because that person is suffering. Don't assume the mind of God as you seek to understand why someone else is going through great trial and conflict in life. Paul had, had difficulty everywhere he went. If you read the book of Acts, I mean, just so much difficulty. And what was God doing? Spreading the gospel all around, getting the gospel everywhere. So as David Garland mentioned in his commentary, as Christ endured suffering to bring salvation to the world, Paul endured it to bring the message of salvation to the world. God was at work, but the Corinthians' impulse was to judge. And they missed what God was doing through Paul. They missed it. And so Paul here is trying to correct their thinking. Now, as we do this, as we embrace this application of comforting one another, we can have confidence that God is at work to bring about salvation, to carry His people through. Look what Paul says their hope is. We'll finish here, verse 7. Paul says, Our hope for you is firmly grounded. 
knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. We can have a fixed, firmly grounded hope in this life through the trials and the comfort we experience. Salvation came to the Corinthians. That's verse 4, salvation. Or verse 6, rather. Salvation came to the Corinthians through Paul's afflictions. And they're being saved now. They're being sanctified now. Through the afflictions of Paul, God is using it to draw the Corinthians closer to him. And Paul's greatest desire was their salvation. Paul desired them to be sanctified, to be made holy for God. And isn't, and isn't, it's just so amazing to me. Paul didn't lose hope with the Corinthians. Out of all the stuff he went through with all the churches, the Corinthians would have been the one to say, I'm done with you. You're hopeless, worthless. You just don't get it. You're not learning. You're not changing. And yet Paul writes to them in verse 7 and says, our hope for you is firmly grounded. Not, he's not saying it's slipping through our hands, all right? You, we're about to let you go. But because Paul knew that God was at work through his suffering and his comfort, he could say about this, this immature church, my hope is firmly grounded because what God has started, he's going to finish. Isn't that right? Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm confident that the work that God has began, he's going to see it through to completion. And so we must also continue in hope, seeking to bless others in affliction through the comfort that we've received in our own afflictions, comforting one another with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you. We come to you so thankful for the comfort that you've given us in Christ. You've given us hope, you've given us grace, you've given us mercy and love. We've received this in Jesus, and day by day we receive more and more. God, we thank you for all of this. And we ask that we would be given a vision as to how we are to share this comfort with others, that we would seek to bless others, and make much of your name starting here in this body, that we would point one another to you, and that we go out to a lost and dying world and do the same. Share with them the message of hope that we have and the comfort that we have because of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.